wherever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves coming to you from the banks of the ripply and effervescent St. Vrain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado. I am Becky Peters, and across the table is the only co-host who has been nominated for two Lifetime Achievement Awards, and he's only in his 30s. It's Ben Cobb. Ben, what's good? It is all good, Becky. I'm feeling hashtag blessed and hashtag grateful to be bringing the advice of giants in education to the earbuds of my favorite people, busy teachers, all to help us be more informed, inspired, and connected educators. And on today's episode, we are so pumped to share a tool that we think has some unbelievable potential for the classroom and for education as a whole. Ooh, a tool to solve all of our problems? I know just what it is. Orange Mocha Frappuccino! Mm, Close. Here's a hint. It's portrayed in a circle. Oh, okay. I got it. That's easy. Uh, You're getting warmer. It was one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time. Think more of like a golden ring. Oh, okay. I got it. I got it. But I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. A sacred promise. Gandalf! No, no, no. This has nothing to do with Simba or Frodo and Mordor. This is the incredibly powerful tool of discovering and then sharing our why. And of all of the subjects we've broached in this podcast, the why behind what we do might be the most important. Yeah, 100%, Becky. I agree. This is such an important topic, which is why I couldn't be more excited that our guest today is Stephen Shedledsky, the head of brand and voice for the Start With Why team. And this team's entire mission is to build on the momentum of Simon Sinek and his Start With Why movement. Now, the Start With Why team has published best-selling books like Start With Why, Find Your Why, Leaders Eat Last, and a bunch more. And of course, they have one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time. It goes back and forth between the three spot and the number one spot. But the last time I checked, it had over 42 million views on TED's website alone and a bunch more on YouTube. And since our entire conversation uses this Start With Why TED Talk as its backdrop, here's a quick recap. So why is Apple the top company of our day? Why was Martin Luther King Jr. such a revolutionary leader? Why do some kids buy in with certain teachers and totally check out with others? Well, it turns out... All the great and inspiring leaders and organizations in the world, they all think, act, and communicate the exact same way. And it's the complete opposite to everyone else. I call it the golden circle. Why? How? What? Every single person, every single organization on the planet knows what they do, 100%. Some know how they do it, but very, very few people or organizations know why they do what they do. By why, I mean what's your purpose, what's your cause, what's your belief? Why does your organization exist? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And why should anyone care? So we all know what we do. We teach kids, right? Some of us might know how we do this. We might teach kids using the constructivist model or using cooperative learning strategies. But do we know why we do this? And more importantly, do our students know our why? Because people don't buy what you do, people buy why you do it. So there's our backdrop. Students don't buy our content area, our grade level, our what. They don't buy our instructional strategies if we use technology or if we don't. Our how. They buy our why. And so in this episode of Stephen Shedletsky, we are so excited to talk about why we should find our why, how we should find our why, and then how to go about sharing it. And stay tuned after the interview to hear our favorite examples of how teachers harness the power of why. So I'd love it if you could just give us an overview about how this whole thing got started, because you know now it seems like an empire. Just what is the golden circle and, and why we start with why? All of Simon's work is semi-autobiographical. Simon, about 
11 years ago uh, in 2006, lost all of his passion for what he was doing. So why the why? If you want to feel inspired, passionate, fulfilled by the work that you do by your everyday life, this is for you. So Simon lost all of his passion for what he was doing. He knew what he did. He knew how he did it different or better than the people who did about the same thing that he did. But he didn't know why he was doing it, why he was busting his chops to get some results for his clients. And when he discovered his why, which is to inspire people to do the things that inspire them so that together each of us can change our world for the better, he had a filter. He now knew what opportunities to pursue, what to say yes to and what to say no to that would bring him and yield him greater feelings of passion, inspiration and fulfillment. What happens when an organization starts with why. Can you maybe tell some stories of really successful companies or organizations and maybe talk about what happens to our neurobiology when we hear the why versus starting with the what or the how? Sure. The the why is not intended to be for all people, right? The, the, the goal is not to be all things to all people. The goal is to mean something to someone and maybe even a lot of someone's. And so I'll, I'll give you an example of an organization that could but isn't. He, here's a company that we all know and we all use, uh, Procter & Gamble. Uh, they're, a, they're a consumer packaged goods company. And if you look at every one of their products, they either directly or indirectly touch human skin. Huh. So they sell laundry detergent, they sell toothpaste, they sell all these things that either directly or indirectly touch human skin. It's, it's as if they've been gifted a why that they're simply not using. And if you only use the why in your marketing, eh, it can actually have a deleterious impact on your culture, on your employees, because you watch a commercial and you go, yeah, not happening for me, right? And so Procter & Gamble could say that our why is that we literally touch people's lives every single day and we strive to make them just a little bit better. Now, the thing is, is if that's only a marketing message, you it's, it's a lie. It's fraud. Um, and your people on the inside will feel it. But if it's something that you live, right, it's inside out. If it's something that you commit to, to providing for your people, and then that, of course, gets to the customer, everyone wins. So the the goal of a school, the goal of, of an institution, of an organization is to serve its end users. But the goal of the leaders, the goal of the administrators is to serve their people. And so in, in organizations, we say, customer comes first or student comes first. And that's actually wrong. An administrator should not put the student first. The administrator should put their educators first such that their educators will put their people first. It goes down a chain. I'm all for administrators being out front when kids are being dropped off, dropped off for school in the morning, off the bus or from their parents and saying hello. But Ultimately, administrators have to support their teachers such that their teachers support e each other and the teachers support the students. So yeah, th this stuff needs to be lived from, from the inside out. Uh, and to the, I mean, we can talk about the science. I mean, this is how we generate feelings of trust, love, fulfillment. It's hard to put into words. Like you could ask me, why do I love my wife? And I go, uh, I don't know, but I know I do. It's when Procter & Gamble says, this is our belief, and then they actually live it people will love working there. And the only way for customers or end users to love a company or a school is for the people who work there to love it first. I adore that oh, that's analogy. That's a fascinating way to look at it. Yeah. I've always felt guilty that I haven't had a way to put into words why I love my husband's. And it's good that I have like an actual <laughs> reason not to. So when you were well, like, yeah, when you yeah, explain the neuro, we are going to have to. Awesome. We're going to have to cut that answer because Procter & Gamble is a, a sponsor. But other than no, that, no, I love he's that. joking. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's fine. You can send it to them. Uh, uh, but just just on the the loving your partner piece, I mean, it's the same thing that like, you know, if you love working where you work, whether it's a, a school or a company and you say, well, why do you love it? You you, you rationalize, right? For, for my wife, I say, you know, I, I trust her. I can tell her anything. I've known her for a while. She's beautiful. She's my best friend, right? At, at when it, and, and like that's the same stuff as if I were to describe a golden retriever. Mm. Like same thing. It's total total rationalization. Um, and we could say that about everyone's part. And even if you talk about work, I love the people. Well, like that doesn't tell me much. So the, the this answers the question of how do you find your why? Whether it's you know why you love your life partner or why you love working at a particular place or what is your why? You look to the anthropology. You look to specific experiences that are either peaks or valleys. So peaks are times that you would love to revisit and live again. Valleys are times that you wouldn't want to relive, though you're a better person for having experienced it. And then the key thing is you, you cannot find your why on your own. If you look at yourself in the mirror and say, Stephen, what, what's my why? It's not going to be so pleasant. But if you tell someone who you trust who doesn't know your stories better than you know your own stories, right? They, they, it shouldn't be a spouse. It shouldn't be a best friend. It could be a coach or it could be a friend that you just trust. And you tell them these peaks and valley stories and themes emerge. Like it just becomes so obvious who you are and what you care about. Um, and that is the makeup. Those are the ingredients of your, your why, your purpose, and your hows, which are your values and action. Ooh, I could see that being an amazing exercise for a school to go through, like for them to to find their why as a school, like to go through the peaks and valleys. That would be a really interesting way to do it. And I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit too about why we don't like. I think some teachers listening might say, "Well, I know why. It's because of the kids. I go for the kids. I go because I'm an educator." And you even said uh, in one of your recent discovery webinars, which I'll I'll post on um, the show notes, that you know don't put I'm an educator in your why how come so one it's if if you say my why is all about, about the kids it's it's too surface and then how do you replicate it right because it's not all kids there are some kids that you probably don't love teaching all the time and there are some kids that it just clicks and you love it or there are some kids that you didn't love it at the beginning but by the end of the semester of the year you're like that was worth it so the question is well what type of kids and what type of experiences like get specific right talk about the kids that you've loved and the kids that were really tough and that says something about who you are and as soon as you know specifically what about the kids then you can replicate it and do it on purpose right maybe your your passion is finding the kids who you see a glimmer in them, but they can't see it yet. And your job throughout the year is to help them see the reason they're amazing, the reason that they're they're capable Right, helping them find confidence in themselves. That's what you love to do. That's more than just it's all about the kids. Like now we're getting to specifics. You're all about the diamond in the rough. It makes it easy to replicate it, to search it, to make it happen. And and the reason we we call it uh take the the what's out of your why. So if if you say that your why is only about teaching or education or um, algorithms, well, then all of a sudden you've pigeonholed your, your yourself, right? This is Richard Branson, his why, you know, he's the founder of Virgin Companies, has more than 300 different companies under the Virgin brand, and they have all one thing in common, Branson's purpose, which is all about infusing fun so that we positively impact people's lives around around the world right? And they go to industries, they they go to areas that are in need of a CPR jolt of fun. They call it a splash of red in a mundane world of gray. And in the areas they're needed, they thrive. 
there's also one thing in common with all of their failures, which is when they enter into markets that are already red, already fun. So Virgin tried to enter into the soda pop market. Coke and Pepsi got that one covered. Already fun, already good, right? You're not needed. But what's neat is, is Virgin has planes, trains, music, so many different industries. So they didn't pigeonhole themselves by saying to put a splash of red in a mundane world of gray only in the music industry. Well, then all of a sudden you've limited yourself. But teaching is one passion. It's, a, it's an outlet. You can find many areas if your why is all about the diamond in the rough, right? Finding the, the glimmer in people that they can't yet see themselves. Well, that has legs. You can do that as a parent. You can do that as a friend. You can do that as a community leader, as a mentor. You can do that in non-for-profit and for-profit and anything in between. Uh, so by taking the kids or, or education out of your why, it gives you more areas in which you can bring it to life. Now, again, you still have what's. So you still, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm a mother, I'm a father, whatever it might be. But taking the what's out of your why gives you an opportunity to innovate and apply it to as many areas in your life and career as possible. Hmm. And probably, I, I would imagine, to make it more contagious, because then that way, we're not just there to find, you know, keeping with your example, uh, the glimmer of hope in one of our students, but also to see that glimmer mm. in our colleagues um, yes. and to help share that across. Because I, I think that's something, you know, that we that we talk about a lot is, you know, collective efficacy and how we help each other become the best selves that we can be. And if, if that's our why as a teacher, maybe if we started to see that in ourselves as a colleague too, that we could just make that much more of a difference. Absolutely. The, the one thing in common with every why is it's about hum, human beings. It's about creating a, a better future for human beings. And the one thing in common with a student and a teacher <laughs> and any educator is that they're all human beings, right? So you're absolutely right. One, one of my favorite lines from the TED Talk is people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And you talked about the why can't just be that marketing thing mm -hmm. that you only share, but you don't really live. But I'm curious, could you put that into teacher vernacular? So how should teachers apply that line of people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it? Sure. That's a great question, Ben. I mean, it's it's the difference between context and content, right? It's I'm sure you've all had experiences in the front of a classroom when you've explained why you're teaching something or the reason you're going in some sort of direction, and you bring people along with you, right? Content lacking context is meaningless, but content with context is meaningful. And so it's looking at a lesson plan, it's looking at a curriculum and understanding um, the reason, the intent behind it in the first place. And when we're clear on that, we have something that guides us and we can bring people along on a journey uh, where we can adventure and grow together. So yeah, I, I would say in teacher language, perhaps it's it's adding context to any content. Does that help? Yeah, 100%. And how often do you find it best to share that? Um, can you overshare the why behind something that you're doing as a teacher, do you think? I don't think so, so long as you live in a with balance, right? It's, yeah. it's called start with why, not end with why. So it's it's important to start with why to explain where you're going and to do it multiple times in a day, so long as you keep going there. Um, so long as you is is you feel that the end result is go, yep, we went there, we accomplished it. So yeah, I mean, was it Edison that said vision without execution is hallucination? Mm -hmm. 
So it's not just about saying this is the why, this is the why. You, you then gotta you gotta go there. Um, it's clarity of why, discipline of how, and consistency of what. Those are the three ingredients you need to actually bring this stuff to life. So we've talked about clarity of why, I think a little bit. What's the, can you talk a little bit more about discipline of how? Sure. So, so like I shared in, in, in the opening, my why is to engage with people in meaningful ways so that we connect with depth and live in a more fulfilled world. And if you said to me, great, Stephen, we want to bring you out to our school board. We want to create our school board to be the most engaging and fulfilling place to, to work, to be a student, to live ever. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> totally aligned with my why. And you go, great. You have six months. Here's a room in, in, in the basement of one of our buildings. Have at it. And I go, whoa, 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 pause. Like my house, I love to work with people. I need to collaborate. I also love variety and I'm highly distractible. So I like to look out the windows, find a squirrel. Like that helps me uh, think and brainstorm. And so I'll go like, I'm totally in line with the intent of the project. However, can we negotiate here? Um, everything looks good, save for the fact that I'm in a room on my own, uh, in a basement, no windows, and I would really appreciate uh, being able to work with a team, a diverse team of people. Can we make that happen? And if you go, no, not going to work, then I go, great, I'm, I can refer you to a colleague who would thrive in this environment. Or if you go, absolutely, we can make those shifts for you, then I'm like, great, let's make magic, let's do it. So discipline of hows is each of us have values and strengths, right? Um, just as you can go to um, a, 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 an educator, a teacher who, who teaches the same subject, they both teach English, but one of them teaches it with from an analytical perspective and another teaches it from a very interactive perspective. And each of us will be drawn to those different teachers. That's a difference of how. And so each of us has a set of strengths. And the goal is to act in line with those strengths, uh, because it helps us feel energized by every single interaction and day. So that's discipline of hmm. how. That's really interesting. I, the whole time you're talking, I, I keep reflecting on you know, how in business, you know, like the golden rule, don't try to be all things to all people. And I think sometimes in public education, we feel forced into that because we do have to be all things to all people. But I think in listening to you, one of the ways that we can tailor that a little bit, I mean, we still have choice in, you know, which student we can put in whose teacher's class or, you know, which teacher chooses to do the coaching after school and and maybe playing to those strengths a little bit more and, and helping our teachers identify those strengths and those, you know, what are the what are the non-negotiables about the discipline of my how might even help us to work more functionally as an entire organization in some sense, if we're not all trying to be all things to all people. Absolutely. You know, yeah, you, you don't have complete control all the time with who, who's in your class or who your colleagues are or who you work with, but the more clear you are on your why, your purpose, and your hows, your, your strengths, the better you can tailor to them and the better you can go, you know what, that kid isn't going to thrive as much with me as they would with mm -hmm. you. Um, or I need to learn from you how to flex these skills of mine so I can better uh, cater to those or tailor to those students. Interesting. The book really talks about the importance of the why from a human motivation standpoint. So I'm curious, have you heard of teachers who help students find their why? Um, and how do they go about doing that? So the, the important thing to realize about the concept of, of why is 
you your why is fully formed by the time you're about 16 to 20 years old. And that's based on both brain development as well as life experience. That your why is your origin story. It's who you are and where you come from. And so you're not born with a why. Uh, based on your life experiences, you have a why. When we do the why discovery process, we ask questions of what are your earliest childhood memories? What are peaks and valleys from your school-aged years? And let's talk about your adult life even. What are, what are times in, you know, in your years after school where things have been um, great or most challenging? And so if, if, you're, you know, if you have kids that are 10 to 15, their why is unlikely to be fully formed. And so it's still valuable to share with them the concepts so that they know what to look for and know what to, to focus on. But it's really until by the time you're about 16 to 20, the youngest person I've done a why discovery with was 16. And we got it. And I know them still today and they're their young 20s and it still works. But that's also because she had a ton of rich and meaningful life experiences up until the point that she was 16. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't advise doing a why discovery with a 10 year old, but it's still valuable to let them know, here's a here's a truth, a constant about the world that, that we live in. Let's unpack it and explore it so that you can design your life from this point, I think would only help uh, kids or, or students pick um, courses and a career direction and, and, you know, a college major, if that's what they want to do or have aspirations of doing that aligns with who they are and what they believe. Well, and how much does it change too? I'm curious about, I mean, for, you know, the 16 year old say, I mean, cause I, mm -hmm. I've had like five different careers already and I, I, I have a, a hunch that my why hasn't changed a whole lot because I, you know, I, I can see a common thread. I haven't defined it yet, but you, you know, but how much like for you, for, for Simon, for people that have been working on this for a long time, like, do you find that it changes and flexes a lot that you need to attend to it or that it stays pretty true to, to what it is and who you are? It, it stays true. So our, our experience is your, your why is typically fully formed by the time you're 20 years old. And then if you live in line with who you are and what you believe, the result is passion. If you live out of line with who you are and what you believe, the result uh, is mm. stress. And so we have one why and one why, why only. Um, and, it, and, and once we have it, once we've had enough life experience to really define what our be beliefs are, who we are, the opportunity is to live in line with it and, and to bring it to, to life. So the, the meaning, the essence of it stays the same. You may find better words to describe what it is, but the meaning and essence of it stays the same. And the opportunity is to use your life as a vehicle to bring your cause to life and to share it with as many people as possible. What's the balance between an organization developing an organization why and then or an organizational why and then the individual components uh, doing so as well? So is the best thing for a school to come up with their compelling why or is it for individual teachers to have theirs that, that might differ a little from the schools. You know, we really believe in moving where the energy is. So you can't force an organization to find its why. The organization, its leaders want to explore it and find it. When you talk about an organization, there are a few places where it could be found. So one is if you have a founder or a visionary of that organization. So let's say it's a private school and you had someone who says, we can do this better or different, or we want to serve in this particular way, chances are that they're a pretty bold entrepreneurial visionary. And their individual why, much like a Richard Branson or a Steve Jobs or a 
Malala, their individual why is the why of their organization. Sometimes there is that visionary founder like a Henry Ford, but they're no longer alive. And so you can still look to the origin story of what's the reason they found founded the organization in the first place that can inform what the why of the organization is. And then finally, um, you can also do what we call a tribe approach which is you find a cross-section of the organization, could both be um, educators and even students, who just embody what the organization stands for at its best. And then you ask them a simple question. For what reason are you proud to be a part of this institution? And get to specific stories. And through that same process, a why and hows emerge of what is so unique, what is the anthropology of this place. There are two ways to, to change uh, a population. It's either evolution or revolution. Um, evolution is typically from the top down. Revolution is from the bottom up and typically more violent. And so what we typically recommend is it's best for an organization to be clear on its why, and then um, for individuals to find their why and see how it fits within. Uh, and that's a concept that we call nested whys. So for example, my why nests underneath Simon Sinek's why. Our founder, Simon, his why is, as I said, is to inspire, to inspire people to do the things that inspire them so that together each of us can change our world for the better. And my why of engaging people in meaningful ways lives underneath his. It makes sense. It's in context. It's underneath the umbrella. But listen, move to where the energy is. If individuals want to find their why and the organization isn't into it yet, that's cool. Go do it. And absent of visionary leadership at the top, just start somewhere. And, you know, we can each choose to be the leader we wish that we had uh, and create the type of environment that we're proud of. And hopefully that fits in the institution you're at. And if not, um, you can find a place where your puzzle piece does fit. I think that's really good advice. Um, and I, I, I kind of want to switch gears and ask you about a few other things too. But before we do, can we talk a little bit through too about the consistency of what? So we started with why. We branched out a little bit to the how. And I'd love sure. to spend a little bit of time just talking about the what and, and how that's important as well. Absolutely. So in the end, we're still tangible species, right? So if I say something about who I am, but I don't show you with my actions, it means that I'm inauthentic, right? This word authenticity, what does it mean? Authenticity means that you say and do the things you actually believe. And so consistency of what is everything from the job I have, the clothes I wear, the friends I have. So if I were wearing a t-shirt right now, Becky, that said up with profits, down with people, it might be funny for a second, <laughs> but it is so counter to everything that I believe in my core that I wouldn't be able to keep it on, right? I'd have to get rid of it, shred it, right? Um, use it as a, a dish rag. Like that's how repelled I am by that, by that phrase. Um, but if I was wearing it, I would be saying something about who I am, but I would be showing you something very different. Um, or if I claim to be people first and then I lay off tens or thousands of employees in the organization, eh, that's an inconsistency. You know, or if I say I really care about serving our customers and then I create some sort of rebate program with my products with fine print that ensures that there's no way you're getting that rebate, right? Not service oriented. And so consistency of what is showing with every single um, action you take that what you say and what you do is reflective of who you are. And what, and That's what all you I want to do right now. <laughs> yeah. Is figure that How out. How can we get like, better at that? Because <laughs> I... Yeah. 
I look at my life and, and I know without a shadow of a doubt that texting and driving is bad, <laughs> uh, but there's a, a really good chance I'm going to be texting and driving when I go to my next meeting, just being completely honest there. So how, what do we do when we see things in our life that aren't consistent with our yeah. why? Because I, I think a lot of teachers feel um, this why behind inspiring kids to be lifelong learners, but the realities of state testing is I got a lecture through these math facts. So what what do you recommend they do to be more consistent in their what? So I would say do the exercise called continue, stop, start, ask for accountability. So continue, stop, start. What are the things that you're currently doing that you know are wonderful reflections of your why and hows in action? How can you ramp those up? Uh, what are some tension points to your point, Ben? You just said texting and driving, like, eh, or I claim to be a lifelong learner, but when mm. was the last time that I read a book, right? So what are the things that, you know, there are tensions and then how can you responsibly uh, close those gaps and then start? What are, what's the thing that you've been saying you'll do for three years that you haven't made progress on? Kudos to you guys for probably doing it with this podcast, but what's, what's the thing that you want to start? That's a wonderful representation and reflection of your why and how's in action. And even better, who can you do it with? Because together is better, right? Um, and then accountability. So if if we have a goal and we keep it in our, our heads, the likelihood that we'll accomplish it is somewhere in the range of 7 to 15%. If we write that goal down, we then start our dopamine reward system. And the likelihood that we accomplish that goal, just because we've written it down, this is the value of a to-do list, is wow. it's about 45%. Just because we've written it down. And if we share it with someone that we care about aloud, the likelihood we will accomplish that goal is north of 80%. And so if you got like, hey, I have these standardized, te- these standardized testings and this curriculum that I've got to hit, but you claim to be a lifelong learner, how can you approach that and even design a curriculum design group amongst teachers in your district or all over the country or all over the world that you can do virtually nowadays that you get to up your game? and help find the why or the context, what's really valuable behind this curriculum, and how can you infuse it in, even though you only have X amount of time, even though all these things are working against you, how can you actually be innovative and and bring to life who you claim you, you truly are and care about? And the thing is, is that if it's a reflection of who you are, it will give you so much energy to, to keep doing it, especially if you begin seeing impact um, in, uh, in the students. And happiness too, I bet. I mean, I, I loved how you said before that, you know, if you're not living your why, that that's where stress comes from. And I mean, all we see around us are, are stressed out people. And I mean, again, I, it's, it's hard because there's so much to do and we are in public ed and it's, it's a, a huge area of service. And, but if we, if we can't attend to these, or I think if we start attending to these, we can just do our jobs better. So I, yeah. I would love to ask a little bit too about, uh, Simon has a book called Leaders Eat Last. And I saw that you are a speaker for some of those workshops. And I, I think as educators, sometimes we don't, yeah. we don't see ourselves as leaders or, you know, we don't pick up leadership books necessarily because, you know, we we're too busy reading education books. So I'd love to hear if, if there are some salient points from, from that, that you think could be really readily translated to the classroom or to a, a building as an administrator that that we could all learn from. Sure, I mean, one, <laughs> accept it or not, you guys are leaders. I mean, you're standing in front of a room, you're in front of people all the time. Um, accept it or not, you're a leader, and a whisper is a shout, right? So you're constantly being watched by those you are you are you have been handed the responsibility 
to usher people, to usher these students. You're a leader. <laughs> you know, the only thing you, you have the opportunity to be a leader, I should say, right? And the only requisite of being a leader, it's not a title, it's followers, people who willingly raise their hand and choose to follow you, not for you, but for themselves, because they believe that you have their own best interests in mind. Uh, and if that happens, you're a leader, title or not. Um, and so, I mean, Simon wrote Start With Why, which is this manifesto for, for purpose, um, that every single uh, inspiring leader in, in an organization is inspiring because they're clear on their why and they start with their why. Um, leaders Eat Last, he wrote a number of years later, because it's first why, it's first inspiration and clarity, and then it's trust. So if you successfully have a, an inspiring vision, and then you don't create a circle of safety, you're not going to go very far. Um, leaders Eat Last is all about the conditions real leaders put in place to ensure that their people feel safe, that they feel valued and valuable, that they feel that they belong. And the strongest organizations are the ones in which people can raise their hand and say, I'm scared. I don't know the answer. I need help. I'm not qualified for my job. <laughs> I'm not qualified for the responsibilities I've been handed. And the response is not reprimand. The response is help. The response is coaching, training, development, support, right? And, you know, we still let you fail. We still let you learn, but we give you an opportunity um, to, to grow. And we give you an, an opportunity um, to pick yourself back up or to be pulled up if you need to grow and become the absolute best human being that, that you can be. And that's what leaders do. Leaders create the conditions where people feel safe to explore and experiment because you cannot innovate or experiment unless you feel safe, right? We cannot take risks unless we feel safe. So that's in a nutshell what Leaders Eat Last is all about. So could you give us a, a tangible way or just one element from that book, what's one way you can start to develop that culture in an organization or thinking as a teacher? How do you develop a, a class of kids willing to do that? So general George Flynn, who's a four-star general and, and emeritus in the Marines, he wrote the foreword to Leaders Eat Last for Simon. And his definition of leadership is very simple. It's asking someone how they're doing and genuinely wanting to hear the answer. How many times do you pass by someone in the halls, whether a student or a teacher, and you go, hey, how's it going? And you just keep walking. But leaders are the ones who go, hey, how's it going? They stop, they look you in the eye, and they expect you to answer. And if you just go, good, you go, go on. <laughs> so that's leadership, you know? And, and the, the greatest teachers are the ones that know what's going on uh, with their kids and know what's going on, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what's going on in the class and what's going on at home to, in, an, in an area that's still responsible and appropriate. But yeah, I mean, leadership is genuinely caring to see how people are doing and genuinely giving them the time and space to, to listen. And Ben, it's, it's the cell phone thing again, right? If you're walking around and you have a cell phone in your hand and you're talking to someone, how do they feel? Probably like not the most important thing in your world right now, right? And if, you, and if your phone rings, you get a text and you look at it and you go, oh, I'm not going to answer that right now. Like, ooh, look at you, right? No, you put it on silent and you put it away. Yep. Or if, it's, if you're expecting a call because there's an emergency with your family or at home, you let them know that. But it's, it's simple, genuinely caring for people stuff. And when, and when people sense that, that you have their back, they will run through walls 
with you and for you because they believe in your vision and they believe, um, you know, cause trust has power. You get like just a ton of mic drops in there and I'm in trouble cause I go through every buffet line <laughs> at school first and I'm usually on my cell phone when I'm in line. So things. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> big trouble. we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, I really am. Hey, what, one thing you, you said, uh, Becky, and this, this might help is, you know, I'm, I, I care more about fulfillment than I care about happiness. So happiness is a fleeting emotion. Sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're, we're sad. And, you know, I, I love what I do and I love who I do it with, but I don't like it every single moment. Just like I don't <laughs> like my daughter every single moment of every single day, but I love her. And so I care more about pursuing fulfillment because fulfillment means that I can have a pretty bad day, but I still love it. I still love why I'm doing it and I love who I'm doing it with. Uh, and I think we all need more days like like that, that, that we love what we're doing. Hmm. It doesn't mean we have to like it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it because I – that's true. I mean, there's – that that would help carry you through. I mean, and we've talked before too about like how pressure is a privilege and, you know, that, that sort of sentiment, I think that kind of speaks to that same fulfillment. So you mentioned that your why is like you as a person. So my question is anytime I'm working in an area that is just perfectly aligned with my why time just flies by and I get in this vortex where I don't look up and don't make eye contact with my wife. So how do we, once we find a why, how do we establish like a work life balance and not just become workaholics because we, it is something we love. Sure. So what, what you just described, uh, Ben is flow state, right? This is flow theory. Um, and it was flow was discovered by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi and Martin Seligman. Martin Seligman's the the founder of positive psychology. So f- when you're in flow, time stands still. And what flow means is you're both um, challenged by something and skilled at it. And that's when time stands still. When you're sucked in to 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 something. And I, you know, for for me, time stands still. Um, one of them is when I'm in deep, meaningful conversation talking about the stuff that matters most. And I'm guilty of doing that with colleagues and with clients, sometimes more than I do it with the people who are closest in my life. Uh, but if if I do that with my wife, which means we've got to get up off the couch, away from Netflix after we've put our daughter down for, for bed, which is a little bit hard because it's against the law for her <laughs> and I to go out and leave our daughter sleeping alone at home, but we have to design meaningful times for us to hop into to, to flow, right? So uh, I would urge you to see, you know, uncover what is it about those times when you're sucked into that vortex of flow, and then how can you recreate that with the people who are closest to you uh, in your world, uh, siblings, parents, and, and life partners, and, and kids. So hmm. it's about recreating. I'm very impressed it. that you could say his name. I, I really hesitate to bring up flow sometimes just because I can't pronounce that guy's name. <laughs> No. <laughs> and I thought you were talking oh about gosh. the girl from Progressive. So I was like super confused. Like, um, we'll end this conversation with where can our listeners go to sure. learn from and with uh, you? So we have an evolving, growing website at startwithywhy.com. And we're continually adding tools and, and uh, insights uh, uh, onto that website. So you can find us there. Uh, and uh, I've got a, a little page on there as well. So you can find me and Google me and you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter and all the fun places you would expect. 
All right, Ben, let's close up shop. What'd you learn? So much, Becky, but I think my favorite moment of the whole interview was hearing Stephen say that we are all leaders. And I know as a teacher, it's really easy not to think of myself in that light. Uh, but the fact is you're standing up in front of a room and you are definitely a leader. So I really liked thinking about myself and as teachers in that light. How about you? That's interesting. Uh, one tangible tip I thought would be cool is like to be really intentional with like after big projects or like even a genius hour or a big assignment or a, a project-based learning thing that you did in class, um, asking students to be reflective about what part of that assignment or that project was spoke most to them. Like what part did you zone out during? Where did you experience flow and talk to them about what that means? And then let students carry that with them and help them apply it to different possible careers. Like, oh, you really enjoyed the research part of that. You know, here are the things that you could do. Um, I think that would be a really cool way to help them reflect on what their why might be, be emerging as. How about you, Ben? Yeah, so one of the things I made more mistakes than I had successes as a teacher, but one of the things I think I did fairly well was after I read the book, um, The Global Achievement Gap with Tony Wagner, and really was convinced that it's more about skills than rote memorization, um, what I did was over that summer break, I found like six or seven different professions that I knew students in my class really aspired to, like police officers and lawyers and doctors and personal trainers. And I took my iPhone and went and interviewed those people about the skills they needed to succeed. And then what I did was like showed that video on the first day of class to the kids and said, um, hey, here are the skills that a police officer uses every day. Here are the skills a lawyer uses every day. And these are also the skills that my class builds on. So even if you don't care about a bicameral legislative branch, you should care about being more effective in your oral and written communication skills. And so I tried to tie every little thing I did um, to not only the content objective, but also the 21st century skill that it built on. And in that way, kids hopefully understood my why, that it wasn't about filling their heads with government knowledge, but helping them be better equipped to be successful in whatever career they chose. So uh, we'll link that YouTube video that I created for my kids. It's super old, but uh, I think it was a I did a good job there sharing my why with the kids. That is really cool. That's really cool, Ben. I, I think that's showing them those applications is super important. And um, I got to brag for a second. I got to see Michelle Obama speak at the Pepsi Center last night. It was really a super cool life experience. Um, and no matter your political views, she just she had messages for everybody about humanity and empathy and the importance of living for other people. And I didn't know this, but she gave up being a lawyer um, after she already had a pretty successful career in that. But she wanted to focus more in the nonprofit world. And one of the things she said about that is you're good at what you're passionate about, not necessarily what other people think you should be good at. And that resonated with me probably because I've switched careers so much and dropped out of med school and things. But I, I feel like I didn't really come alive until I started working in education. I, I also do think that's a little bit dangerous, though. If we take that narrative too far in the other direction, I think it can be almost paralyzing and, and might not honor the personal evolutions that we go through throughout our lives. I don't know that we all have one passion that we're trying to find. And to me, that's it's almost the same as saying like there's one person that's the love of your life out there for everybody. I think there's a lot of ways to live a beautiful life. Um, so when Stephen asserts that, you know, someone's why sticks to them throughout their lives, I wonder if that's true. But I keep coming to a quote by that I love by Howard Thurman. Uh, it goes, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And I try to remember that whenever I'm, you know, questioning what I'm doing with my life or, you know, what my why actually is, is 
what's life giving for me. Um, and I, I do know that's grounded in service. So maybe that's what Stephen means. Maybe at some level you have beliefs about how you spend your day and then that's what your why turns into. But I think if we're all more intentional and focused and true to that why, and if we know that about ourselves, that we might navigate the world and our interactions with more purpose and more clarity, and then even more openly welcome other people's perspectives because then those perspectives might not might not be a threat to what we maybe don't know about ourselves. So she also talked a lot about being authentically her and how people can see that in you. Um, so I think staying true to your why throughout your interactions, what projects you say yes to, and, and basically how you spend your days uh, can help us all lead less stressed and more fulfilling lives like Stephen talked about. That's all. That's super cool. And thanks for sharing that. Kind of makes me think of uh, Cal Newport wrote a book and we're going to interview Cal in a few weeks about a book that he has coming up. But he wrote a book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which talks about the myth of that one single calling in your life and that really fulfillment isn't from necessarily one uh, passion that you have and going after that. But it's also having knowing that you have impact and um, I think that kind of ties in. So I'll be interested to flesh that out with him. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. Well, thanks again for listening. Uh, give us feedback at tinyurl.com slash brainwavesfeedback. And as always, have a great generic time of day. 